0: okay let's go ahead and read john 6 beginning in verse 16 through verse 21 just a few verses here when evening came his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat and started across the sea to capernaum it was now dark and jesus had not yet come to them The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they'd rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We pray that you would use it in our lives to reveal to us the glory of Jesus Christ, that we might know him more. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I think I hear something. Okay, we're on now. Have you ever thought that you knew something? or someone, only to come to realize how little over time you had really understood about them before. I think about how this could happen with something, like, for instance, the Grand Canyon. Perhaps you've developed a fascination with this place, and you love learning about it, and you read books, and you study maps and you look at pictures and videos of it. And over time, you you sort of fancy yourself a, a lay expert on the Grand Canyon. But then finally, you take a trip to the Grand Canyon for the first time. And you drive around the many miles of its rim and look across its various vista points. And you hike down into it and Firsthand you get a sense of the vegetation, the kind of wildlife that live in between its massive walls. And you visit the various visitor centers and museums and you discover much more information than you had previously been aware of. And it was all breathtaking and fascinating being there. And when your trip's over, you come to realize that you now know so much more about the Grand Canyon than you had before, and you also realize that there's still so much to know, far more than you ever realized before. You'd only scratched the surface of all there was to know about that magnificent place. This can also happen with people. For instance, if you are married in this room, then this probably happened between you and your spouse. At first, you hadn't met them. And then you became acquainted with them. And perhaps you had a brief conversation with them. And then maybe you talked with mutual acquaintances and learned more about them. But eventually, you ended up spending a lot of time with them and really getting to know them at a, a deeper level. And you learn about them personally, and you get to know their personalities. And then your knowledge of them is taken to a whole other level when you become engaged and you work through all kinds of life issues together. And And you think you know them about as best as you can possibly know them. And then you get married. And you learn even more. Now all the guards are down. Now you're sharing the most intimate aspects of life together. And you realize that you had only been scratching the surface of your knowledge of this person. And there is so much more to know. And perhaps later on in the season of your life where you're growing older together and you've been through so much together, and you realize, I know so much more about my spouse now than I did when we first got married. Well, this same dynamic, which I've just been describing, also applies to our relationship with Jesus. First, we learn about him we come to know him personally. And after this, we spend our whole life growing in our knowledge of him. And indeed, when we, we get to see this happen with the disciples in the New Testament, as we read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we watch the 12 disciples and others grow in their knowledge of Jesus over time. There are many eye-popping moments in the record of this process that we have in the Gospels where you see that the disciples thought they knew Jesus pretty well, only to realize that they hadn't really understood who he was before and were only scratching the surface. Our text this morning is one example of that, I think. John 6, 16-21. Jesus, in this text, what he's doing is he's pulling back the curtain for his disciples so that they can see his glory in a way they hadn't before. Indeed, what this text intends to do for all of us as we are reading it today is to do the same for us. So before diving into this story, let me just put a few pieces of context into place that I think will help you understand it better, and then we'll dive in. So the first thing to remember here is that the Apostle John, in this fourth account of the gospel, he has chosen to use seven miracles in particular to tell us about Jesus. They form the backbone of the book, and we have already seen four of them. We saw first the miracle of Jesus changing water into wine at a wedding of Cana. That's chapter 2. We saw the miracle of Jesus healing an official's son in chapter 4. We saw the miracle of Jesus healing that lame man at a pool called Bethesda in the city of Jerusalem. That's chapter 5. And then, just last time, we saw The fourth miracle, the miracle of Jesus taking five loaves and two fish and multiplying them to feed 5,000 men plus their families. That's the beginning of chapter 6. And the event described in our text now this morning, chapter 6, verses 16 through 21, follows right on the heels of that fourth miracle. And it's typically considered to describe the fifth miraculous sign in John's account of the gospel. Now remember that all of these miracles recorded in the book, they're called by John signs. Why? Because they point us to certain things about who Jesus is and what he came to do as the Christ, the Son of God. So that's the first piece of context, just to plug in and remind you of what this, chapter, this section is all about. The second thing to remember is that the events of this entire sixth chapter are intended by John to echo back to the events surrounding the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. So you remember, it all sort of began in verse 4 where John told us, just sort of out of the blue, he sticks in that these events took place just before the Passover. And when you think about the Passover, you think about what it celebrated, the exodus and the surrounding Events. And then you get to the miracle of Jesus multiplying the bread to feed 5,000 Israelites in a desolate wilderness. And that echoes in your mind the Lord miraculously feeding Israel with bread in the wilderness of Sinai after he delivered them out of Egypt. And now, the event described in our text, I think follows the same exodus theme because when jesus demonstrated authority over the sea of galilee to bring his disciples safely to the other side it it also could draw your mind back to the way yahweh demonstrated authority over the red sea to lead his people safely through it after bringing them out of egypt so that's the second piece of context just the background of Exodus imagery and the the event of the Exodus serving as the backdrop of this chapter. The third piece of context to remember is simply what has just taken place prior to the event that we've come to this morning. We have to bring it back to mind to understand what's about to happen. So you remember to escape the incessant press of the crowds. Jesus had taken his disciples and sailed across the Sea of Galilee to a desolate place on the on the northeast side of the sea by the city that was there called Bethsaida. And when they arrive there, they pull up to shore and find large crowds waiting for them. And Jesus spends the day ministering to them. And then in the evening, at the end of the day, in the, in the late afternoon, I should say, the Jesus takes a break from the crowds and, or sorry, uh, that evening he takes a break from the crowds. He brings his disciples up on a hill and it becomes clear that the disciples need food because it's a desolate place. And so Jesus, you remember, first tests his disciples. Where are we going to go to buy bread for all these people? And they fail the test and then Jesus multiplies the five loaves and the two fish that he brings them to feed the 5,000 men plus their families there in that desolate place. And then after the miracle, John tells us that the crowds were planning to take Jesus by force because they had seen this incredible miracle and to make him king. And so it tells us that Jesus withdrew to a mountain by himself, and that's where we left off last time. So that's the third piece of context, just what had happened leading up to this event. Now let's dive into verses 16 through 21 and see what happens next. So Jesus had multiplied the loaves in the late afternoon. And now it's evening. That is, that time between the afternoon and and complete darkness. We might say it's dusk time. It's beginning to get dark. And you wouldn't think that this was the best time to go sailing across the Sea of Galilee, right when it's getting dark, especially when you consider how long of a day it has been for them. You know, sailing across the sea in the morning, thinking you're going to get away for some rest with Jesus, finding crowds there, ministering to them all day, then having this incredible miracle. You would think that it would make more sense for them just to stay there overnight and then sail back to Capernaum in the morning. But John tells us, verses 16 and 17, that quote, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. And in case you surmise that you know this is like dad who says, why don't we just drive all night just so we can get home? That's not what is happening here. Both Matthew and Mark tell us that it was because Jesus made them do it while he stayed on the shore. So something is going on here. In fact, Matthew's account says this, Matthew 14, 22 through 23. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there, alone. Now this strange action on the part of Jesus, you can imagine, in the face of the protestation of his disciples, it indicated that there was a reason that he wanted to, this situation to unfold in the way it did. He wanted his disciples to be sailing back across the sea by themselves in the middle of the night. He had something in store for them on this journey. And one has to think that when Matthew tells us that the disciples have departed in the boat, they're sailing across the sea, or better, rowing across the sea, It says, he went up onto the mountain by himself to pray. One has to think that he was praying for his disciples, that they might learn the lesson which this imminent event was designed to teach them. You know, perhaps it's a bit of a stretch, but you know, as I was reading these verses from Matthew's account of this event, I, I just couldn't help reflecting on the fact that though Jesus is not physically present with me, with us right now, just as He wasn't with these disciples in the boat, yet it occurred to me that He is also praying for us from heaven now, just as He was Praying for his disciples as they were in the boat, on the sea, from the mountain. And the reason I say that is because I was remembering Hebrews 7.25 where it says that he always lives to make intercession for us. As our great high priest, having risen in the body and ascended to the right hand of God, he is there. Interceding before the Father on our behalf. And it also occurred to me that as you think of Jesus' his heart for his disciples as they're in the boat and his concern for them, that his heart for us, as his disciples now, has has not changed. It's the same as it was for his disciples then. He loves us. He is concerned for our well-being. He is interceding to the Father that we might learn the lessons that he intends for us through the circumstances that he's putting before us in his life, his perfect wisdom, whether they be difficult or pleasant. Well, John continues the story at the end of verse 16. He says, It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. You might conclude from that phrase that Jesus had not yet come to them, that that the disciples were expecting him to come to them in the middle of the lake. I don't think that's what John meant. Remember, John was in this boat. He seems rather as the author to be reflecting back upon that fateful night and saying, what was about to happen hadn't happened yet by the time it got dark. Now, in addition to being dark, John adds another ominous note there in verse 18. It says, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. This is a very unusual sea, the Sea of Galilee. D.A. Carson explains, he says, the Sea of Galilee lies about 600 feet below sea level. And because of that, cool air from the southeastern tablelands can can rush in to displace the warm, moist air over the lake, churning up the water in a violent squall. In fact, Matthew's Gospel tells us that the disciples had got caught in one of these squalls on a previous occasion, and it had nearly sunk their boat. Jesus, you remember, was asleep in the bow. Matthew 8, 23 through 27. We know that happened before this because this event is recorded in Matthew 14. So this storm in John 6, it wasn't, it wasn't as violent as that. There's no indication that um, they were about to sink. But it wasn't a pleasant situation for the disciples, right? They're mentally, physically exhausted, from a long day of ministry. Instead of setting up camp, Jesus had made them get into the boat and made them make this journey back across the sea at night. And this was no easy task. It was about five to six miles from where they had been to where they were going, Capernaum. And they would have to row the whole way. Now, you wouldn't you know it, as soon as it gets dark... The wind picks up. The sea gets rough. And an already difficult journey becomes just that much longer and more difficult. Mark tells us in his account of this event that Jesus, it says, looking from the shore, quote, saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. That gives you a sense of what's happening here. It had to have been A miserable night for them. And yet it was all part of Jesus' plan. They couldn't see it at the time. But these challenging circumstances would all serve to enhance the lesson that he was about to teach them. And this too is a helpful reminder to us, isn't it? That sometimes it is necessary for Jesus to put us through difficult circumstances in life to teach us certain lessons. The difficulties themselves might not be good, but we couldn't learn what we needed to without going through them. They're a necessary part of Jesus' training process of us. Think of what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 12, 11. He uses the word discipline But it's not just like a spanking, it's a larger, a word that refers to the larger process of training in this context. He says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we ought not to despise, you see, the difficulties the Lord sets in our path. Grumbling against him for it. Rather, we have to try to check ourselves and try to recognize his loving purpose behind these difficulties so that we might trust him as we endure them. Perhaps that's something that you need to think about right now because of a particular difficulty you're going through in your life. Well, verse 19 brings us to the key moment. It begins by saying this, when they had rowed about three or four miles, I'm already exhausted hearing those words. (laughs) If the length of their journey was five to six miles total, they're about midway through it, right? In other words, they're out in the middle of the sea, a long way from shore in any direction. And and that detail serves to enhance the miraculous nature of what's about to take place. You know, some scholars have said, well, they were probably just really close to land, and they thought they saw Jesus walking on the water, but he was actually just walking on the shore. They're out in the middle of the lake. And it explains the impact that the event which was about to take place would have upon the disciples. Out in the middle of sea, far from land, Amid high winds, tall waves, the last thing they ever expect to see is a pedestrian. (laughs) Matthew and Mark add that it was, quote, the fourth watch of the night, which is also interesting because it means that it was between 3 and 6 a.m. In other words, they had been rowing for something like Seven, eight hours, perhaps. Much of the time against strong winds on rough seas. You have to imagine. 3 a.m. comes around. And they are wiped out, mentally frazzled by this point. And it was precisely then, in a very tight spot, when that, they're at the end of their rope, feeling very weak, feeling, no doubt, very vulnerable, Wondering, are we going to make it? That it says in the rest of verse 19, they saw Jesus walking on the sea coming near the boat. Now, since they're rowing, right? You know how rowing works. They would have been facing backwards in the boat toward the shore that they had left hours earlier. So they must have seen Jesus, you know, it's dark, so wouldn't have been right away, but they would have seen him coming from a long way off, though because of the distance and the rough seas, you can imagine it would have taken some time for them to figure out what they were seeing. And there's an eerie slowness to this all, isn't there? Jesus is walking, not running on the sea. But in God's providence, because the wind was so restraining the progress of their boat, he was gaining on it as he walked. And you can imagine the disciples' growing sense of confusion, going from, oh, that's weird, what is that? To, what is that? To recognizing what it is that they were seeing, that, the alarm that they were seeing the figure of a man walking on the sea, coming into view, not knowing what it was at first and until it grew from a tiny dot into the shape of a man walking on the water. And when they finally understood what they were seeing coming toward them, it, it would not have comforted them, right? I mean, this is not like, They went from what is that to, oh, phew, it's just a man walking on the water. No, I mean, a number of these disciples, right, are seasoned fishermen. They'd been spent many hours on this very sea, and yet this was about the most unexpected thing that any of them could have ever imagined beholding out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And they reacted the same way that any of us would have reacted. John tells us they were frightened. Okay, that is a a very muted description. Matthew's account adds a little pizzazz to it, a little color. It says, But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. That shows us that when... Even when they see Jesus begin to draw near to the boat, they don't recognize who he is. Remember, it's the middle of the night. It's probably very dark. So Jesus is near enough to the boat that they recognize that he's a man, but they couldn't see him well enough in the darkness to recognize that he's Jesus. All they know is there is a figure of a man walking on top of the water near their boat. They are absolutely terrified. It literally makes them shriek, cry out. As you can imagine, you would probably do. Their fear is so great in this moment. And seeing the panic, Jesus took immediate action to calm them down. So we read in verse 20, but he said to them, "It is I. Do not be afraid." It is pretty interesting that some have pointed out that the Greek phrase translated "it is I" is ego eimi. It's the same phrase translated "I am" throughout the rest of the book. Now, it's very tempting to be like there must be some significance to that. You know, perhaps there is, but it's also just the normal way that you would say "it is I" or "it's me." And that's almost certainly all it means in this context. We should probably resist the temptation to read more into it than that in this particular context. But I would say that there is something very striking about what he says. It is I, do not be afraid. And I want to explain it, but it's going to take some time to build up to the point. So let me just back up and say a few things about this situation. This entire situation... It had been orchestrated by Jesus, right? It's not like he accidentally thought, oh, this is cool. Just go out to them on the sea. All of this had been planned. He had made them go ahead of him in the boat. He had waited until they were in the middle of the sea at night. He had orchestrated this storm to restrain their boat so that he could walk out to them on top of the water in the middle of the sea. And it's obvious, isn't it, why he did it? He was demonstrating to them his power and his authority over what, over the created order, so that they might see and understand his true identity as the Messiah. I think this is confirmed by the other accounts of this miracle in Matthew and Mark. They tell us that when they tell us things that, that John doesn't tell us, for instance that when this miracle of Jesus walking on the sea happened, it was immediately followed by a second miracle. So Matthew describes the second miracle. He says this, that when Jesus got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So just imagine it. Imagine that first you see Jesus walking on top of the stormy seas. Then you watch as the wind completely stops blowing. As soon as he gets into the boat, they had to be asking themselves. Like they had actually done in the previous event where they had been caught in a squall. And he had stood up and said, peace, be still to the wind. What sort of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. If that wasn't enough, John tells us that these two miracles were followed, it seems, by a third miracle, which is equally, if not more, startling. We read the account of it in verse 21 of our text. There it says, They were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Did you catch it? You know, some have tried to argue that when it says, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going, that it's just saying that, hey, it took no time at all to row uh, the rest of the way once the winds had died down. But that seems to be a stretch because... They were at least one to two miles away from shore when Jesus got into the boat. And John says here, immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. See, more likely, John is describing another miraculous event, that just as Jesus got into the boat, the disciples look up and realize that they had instantaneously been transported to the waters just off Capernaum. That the rest of their journey had been covered in the blink of an eye by a supernatural power that Jesus had. It, It reminds me of when Philip was baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch and it says the Holy Spirit carried him away so that the Ethiopian eunuch no longer saw him and he found himself near Bethsaida. Obviously, this sort of complex of miraculous events that were carried out by Jesus right before the eyes of his disciples, on the middle of the Sea of Galilee, they're obviously intended to pull back the curtain for them, to reveal to them his true glory as the Messiah. They are intended to see through these signs that Jesus, although a true man, was no mere man. So who was he then? You know, Job rightly said in Job 9.8 that it is God who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. The psalmist praised Yahweh, the Lord, in Psalm 89, verse 9, saying, You rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise. You still them. And again, in Psalm 107, verses 28 through 30, it's written, "Then they cried to the Lord, Yahweh, in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven." Very striking, that here in our text, we see Jesus trampling on the waves of the sea stilling the stormy winds and bringing his disciples to their desired haven on the sea. So, what is being revealed about Jesus through this miraculous sign? That which was articulated in the opening lines of the book. That he was the Word, who was with God in the beginning, who is himself God, through whom all things were made and who now has become flesh and dwelt among us, so that we have seen his glory. Yahweh himself, who alone has power and authority over his creation, had now entered into it as a man, Jesus Christ. In fact, you might say that the very one who so long ago had split the Red Sea so that Israel could pass through it on dry land, had now walked to these disciples on the sea, calmed the wind, and transported them safely to the other side. So this fifth sign, recorded in John's Gospel, it revealed that Jesus was the God-man, who had authority over the created order. as the one who made it. Now, this truth, of course, it was also evident in the fourth sign, wasn't it? The last sign, which Jesus had performed just at the beginning of the previous day. He'd multiplied loaves of bread to feed 5,000 people. I mean, that miracle, too, demonstrated, didn't it? His authority over the natural world. But as Mark's account tells us concerning his disciples, he said, they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. You see, the disciples hadn't got it. They hadn't got the full implications of that previous sign. So he had arranged to perform another one out on the sea that very night so that they might begin to get it, to grasp his true identity, to know him better as the divine Son of God. And by the time their boat docked in Capernaum, in the wee hours of that morning, I mean, they had to have come to know Jesus in a way that they hadn't before. And it is this very divine identity revealed through this fifth miraculous sign of Jesus walking to his disciples on the sea which made his words back in verse 20 so striking. I mean, even though the miracle had revealed him to be the incarnate God who had authority over the wind and the waves, yet he says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. In other words, though he was the Lord, that's what was being seen as the curtain was pulled back to see him. He is the one whom Job described as the one who alone stretched out the heavens and tramples on the waves of the sea. Yet they didn't need to be afraid of him. Because he was also the man Jesus, whom they knew, their master, gentle and lowly of heart, who had called them to be his disciples and had taught them and guided them all these many months that they had lived with him. He knew them. He loved them. They knew him. They loved him in return. So, despite being utterly astounded by the awesome power and authority over the natural world that Jesus revealed that he had through this miracle, he assured his disciples they didn't need to be afraid of him. It is I. Do not be afraid. And indeed, when they realized it was him, they weren't afraid. Did you see? They were glad to take him into the boat. It had been a long and difficult night on the stormy sea without him. But once he was with them, they knew. Everything's going to be okay. Now, let's think about what this account of the fifth sign in John's gospel, what does it mean for us today as Christians? Well, for one thing, the purpose of the sign is always instructive. The purpose of the sign. The sole reason that Jesus performed this complex of miracles was to show his disciples who he was so that they might know him better. They already knew him, but he wanted them to know him more. And the reason John has written this whole book right, is so that we who read it might know Jesus better as well through this series of miraculous signs. This is one of them. And so we are reminded here, just to begin with, of the supreme value that the scriptures place upon knowing Jesus. I mean, later in this book, John says, he says, he quotes Jesus in his high priestly prayer saying, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And the Apostle Paul, I think of his words in Philippians chapter 3 verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So, knowing Jesus, understanding the truth about Him, knowing Him personally, is more valuable than anything else in life. Indeed, it is eternal life. And therefore, we should seek it. We should seek it above anything else. If you think that sounds esoteric, and you're saying, well, Jeremy, that's not really practical. How does that help my life, knowing Jesus? Well, you know what? I bet you, you know people in your life right now who, when you got to know them, they changed your life. Just knowing them changed your life. Well, let me tell you, nothing will change your life more than knowing the God-man Jesus Christ. And what we see in John 6, 16-21 is that Jesus is interested in revealing himself to you so that you might know him better. Now, in light of that, we should be humbled. We we should be grateful. We should be eager to learn all that he has to reveal to us about himself. Not only in this text, but every day as you read the scriptures. Lord, I want to know you. If you pray for one thing in your life, pray that Jesus might reveal himself to you more and more that you might become more and more acquainted with him. But as you do that, be prepared. Because sometimes Jesus' answer to that prayer will involve making you row against the wind into a stormy sea in the middle of the night. In other words, sometimes Jesus knows that the best way To reveal his glory to you is to make you go through dark and difficult circumstances and to meet you right there. It may be that Jesus will see fit to allow us to grieve so that we might know the depths of his comfort. It may be that Jesus will allow us to suffer financial strain and loss so that we might know his faithfulness to provide for us and his generosity of heart. It may be that Jesus will allow us to be slandered by our co-workers and and fired from our job by our employer for the sake of our Christian faith so that we might begin to share in his sufferings, to know what it was like that Christ suffered for us. Just a, a taste of what it was for him to be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. So be ready. Sometimes the best place for us to see the glory of Christ is in the midst of a storm. Be ready. He might take you into one to show you more of himself. And, And don't forget that the purpose of this text is to reveal to us that Jesus is none other than the God-man who has authority and power over creation itself. You know, on the one hand, we are to appreciate the true humanity of Jesus. That he cried as an infant when he was hungry and he nursed at his mother's breast. That he learned to take his first steps as a toddler. That He worked in his father's shop and and learned the trade of carpentry as he got older. That he walked around the dusty streets of Jerusalem and got dirt in between his toes. And every once in a while he had to stop and pick a pebble out of his sandal. The true humanity of Jesus. You know, there is a reason why the people of his hometown struggled with the magnificent claims that he was making about himself and, and couldn't believe that he truly was the Messiah because he watched him grow up, and the life that he lived among them was truly and genuinely human. But what our text emphasizes is the equally and complementary point that he was also fully God. He could defy the laws of nature to walk upon the waves because he is the Lord who created those seas and rules over them. He could cause the winds to cease because the wind obeys the commands of its maker. And he could transport the disciples from the middle of the sea to the shores of Capernaum in an instant because... He's the one who established space and time itself from the beginning. And he orders it however he sees fit. So, those who read this text are meant to come away with a greater grasp of the deity of Jesus. To feel something of the stunned awe which must have filled his disciples' as they saw it on display in the middle of the Sea of Galilee that night. Those who believe what this text says about Jesus, and that should be us, should find ourselves doing what Matthew says the disciples did when he lifted up his leg and climbed into their boat that night. He tells us, those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And it is right and it is good to be filled with this gratitude and affection for Jesus. But we also should ask ourselves the question, have we ever been utterly astounded by Him? If not, we may not know Him as well as we think we do. And we should meditate upon what is revealed to us about him in this text. But then, believer, just consider how incredible it is that even as Jesus reveals himself to us through this miracle as the God-man who wields authority over the created order, yet as he draws near to us, we also can hear him say, It is I, Do not be afraid. Though he is so great, he can walk on the sea and cause the wind to stop blowing. We don't need to be afraid of him because he is Jesus. Gentle and lowly in heart. He's called us to be his disciples. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. He's present with us throughout our lives. He leads us in his perfect love. The Lord of heaven and earth is our good shepherd, who, who calls us each by name and every day leads us out to pasture, perfect, protects us, provides for us. The Colossians 1 firstborn of all creation, the Hebrews 1, heir of all things, is our elder brother through whom we've been adopted as children into the family of God. The King of kings at the right hand of God in heaven is our bridegroom who has chosen us to be his for all eternity. Who has purchased us through his own blood in history, who has sealed us with his Holy Spirit as belonging to him until he returns to take us to himself. Do you see? Even as our hearts are utterly astounded to see the majestic glory of Jesus revealed through this miracle, we need not be afraid of him because we're his and he knows us, and he loves us. You think of a picture of a little child running into the arms of the fiercest warrior you can imagine. Why? Because he's her father. Well, so we can run boldly into the arms of the one who comes to us walking on the sea and commands the winds to be silent because he's our king, our saviour. And finally, brothers and sisters, consider how glad the disciples were to take Jesus into the boat with them. If this one who commanded the wind and the waves was with them, well, they have nothing to fear. And, and so, should we not think the same way, brothers and sisters, if Jesus truly is this divine figure revealed to us in this text who has authority over the created order, then should not our hearts be likewise filled with comfort and gladness to know he's with us today? Has he not said, John 14, he will not leave us as orphans, but he will come to us? Does not the apostle John say in Romans 8, that if we belong to Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Does not Ephesians 2.22 tell us that in Christ we are a dwelling place for God by the Spirit? And don't we read in Hebrews 13.5 that He will never leave us nor forsake us? If that's true, that the Jesus we read of in this text who has authority over the created order as the divine Son of God is with us throughout our life, well then, really, we don't have anything to worry about. We can take comfort in His protection when we are in danger. We can be bold to do what He calls us to do in ministry. We can trust Him and not fall away from him when we find ourselves in the eye of a stormy trial. Because we know that the one who is Yahweh is with us in the boat. But let me just clarify one more thing. The only way any sinful human being like us can be unafraid in the presence of this man, Jesus, is if they have come to know Him. First, like John the Baptist said, as the Lamb of God, and have put their trust in Him to take away their sins through His sacrificial death on the cross. Otherwise, as the writer of Hebrews put it, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of Jesus. Because He is the judge of all the earth to whom we will all one day, give an account for our lives at the end of the age. So, if you haven't done so yet, you must first come to Jesus for your salvation from sin. And of course, He welcomes you to come. And He will save you by His grace. And then He'll put His Spirit within you and you will experience the joy and the peace of familiar fellowship with this one, the Son of God, and you will come to know Him, and you will begin a journey of knowing Him more, and it will never stop for all eternity. If you're a Christian here this morning, you know Jesus. But it's passages like this one, John 6, 16-21, that help us to see that we probably don't know Him as well as we think we do. May the Holy Spirit use this text to pull back the curtain to show us more of the glory of Christ so that we might know him better than we did before. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for in your perfect wisdom, your mighty power, sending us the divine, eternal person of your Son, into the world to take on flesh to be our representative in life fulfilling all your commands on our behalf as the second Adam to be our substitute in death dying in our place for our sins upon the cross that we might be forgiven rising again on the third day as our eternal high priest and ultimate Davidic king that he might bring peace through his righteous reign forever oh Lord we thank you for sending Jesus and for giving us each one of us who know him in this room that faith and trust in him that has led to a relationship of personal knowledge of him We thank you for revealing his glory to us through the word. And we pray that our life might be a journey of growing to know him more. Being drawn to him in affection. Astounded by him in wonder. And so many other things. We pray it in his name. Amen.